In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story of two sons. Verse 18, as our children are dismissed to children's church. In verse 18, the younger son, after living, squandering all of his father's inheritance, says this. He says, I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. And I believe that many of us have felt that emotion of no longer being worthy to be a child of God. And as the praise team sang this morning, oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. We see verse 20, he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him felt compassion for him, ran to him, embraced him, kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father stopped him and said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead and is now alive was lost and has now been found, began to be merry and party. Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I'm the chiefest of. We aren't worthy, but he was. Oh, what a Savior. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 17 through 28 this morning. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Now we understand that the book of Matthew, uh, as all of the Gospels, as all of the books in the Bible have a specific author, a specific audience, and have a specific theme. And so when we're dealing with the book of Matthew uh, for several years now, uh, we understand that the book of Matthew was written by Matthew, and the book of Matthew was written to a specific audience, and that audience are the Jews, and the book of Matthew was written to convey a specific theme, and that is to present Jesus as the son of David. Now this morning, we're going to look at, at this, this theme of Jesus as the suffering servant, and for the Jewish people, that's going to be a very difficult pill to swallow. It's going to be something that's very difficult for them. They're going to, to see the son of David as a servant. This, this, this blew their mind. The son of David was the Messiah. The son of David was the one who was coming as the king of the Jews. The son of David was the one who was coming to sit upon the throne of Israel. And how could this son of David, how could this anointed one, how could this promised one, this Messiah, be a servant? That, that's, that's, that's foreign to them. That doesn't make any sense. So we're going to look at what Matthew says in verses 17 through 28. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. <clears throat> As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves on the way, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered 
to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and he will deliver, and will deliver him to the Gentiles, and mock him, and scourge him, and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him, and said to her, he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, that their great men exercise authority over them. It's not so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. God, may you speak through your word this morning. May you touch our hearts. May you convict us of our pride, our arrogance, our sin that we may run to the cross. Lord, may we model Jesus in everything that we say and everything that we do. And may the world that we live in be drawn to Christ in us. It's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. The son of David, a servant, really? How in the world is this this anointed promised one this this messiah going to be a servant this is something that for the jewish people was so completely foreign let me let me let me remind us of of where we are in the history in the history of the jewish people in the history of the israelites they've just come through this 400 year period of silence followed by a period of exile so israel has gone they've they've become captives they become strangers in a land that is not there the assyrians came in and took the northern kingdom the babylonians came in and took the southern kingdom the persians came in and captured it all they're followed by the greeks then followed by the romans and now israel during this time during this this intertestamental period they were expecting a messiah they were expecting someone to come on on behalf of israel and deliver them from bondage And during this time, a man by the name of Judas Maccabees leads a revolt, and they are excited. They believe that this is the the deliverance that we're expecting, and and they, they, they throw off the chains of Rome for a while, only to be recaptured and only to to continue to suffer under oppression. But that, that Maccabean revolt led to a, a messianic expectancy, and they believed that God was going to bring a Messiah to f- deliver them physically, politically, from the bondage of the Roman Empire. This is where they are. And this Jesus, this Nazarene, 
the disciples truly believe and many of the followers truly believe that this Jesus is that Messiah. And we'll see in just a couple weeks as Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, they are saying that they are singing Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna for the Jewish people literally was a proclamation of praise to the coming Messiah. And so as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, they are saying, this is our deliverer. Praise God, a deliverer is coming. He is entering into into Jerusalem for the express purpose of delivering us from the Roman people, from the Roman Empire. This is what the disciples and the Jews believed Jesus was coming for. And Jesus tells them, they're going to kill me. I didn't come to be served as a king, but I came to be a servant. This blew their mind. But I want to point out to you, look at verse, seven, uh, verse 18 and 19. Jesus takes his disciples aside, and he tells them, he reminds them, he reminds them that, guys, newsflash, they're going to kill me. Now, he has done this three different times in the past four or five chapters. Chapter 16, he did this. Chapter 17, he did this. And now in chapter 20, he does this. He pulls them aside and says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. The Son of Man is going to be crucified. The Son of Man is going to be killed. The Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of the high priest. The Son of Man is going to be killed. He does this. He pulls them aside and he tells them this. Now, I want to point out that Jesus understood from the very beginning, his divine purpose and his divine plan. Jesus understood that that the Father had a purpose and had a plan for him, and that purpose and that plan was never to reign on the throne of Israel in a physical sense. We'll see in in John's gospel that Jesus tells his disciples and Jesus tells Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my disciples would take up arms and they would fight but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus understood his divine plan and the divine plan of God from the very beginning. This tells us, this tells us that Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. I want us to understand this, church, that God was not up in heaven wringing his hands when Adam and Eve decided that they were going to sin and, and, and God says, oh no, we have to come up with some, some plan. We have to come up with some, some system so that we can deal with sin. I got it. Let's do the sacrificial system. And then after a few hundred years, realized that wasn't going to work and said, okay, now what are we going to do? Oh, I, I, I got it. We'll, we'll, we'll send Jesus and, and, and he'll be the savior. No, Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus was God's intention from the beginning. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that he is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. Jesus was the plan of God for salvation from the beginning. Abraham, the scripture tells us in Romans, Abraham was reckoned righteous not because he he held to the law, but Abraham was reckoned righteous because of his faith. His faith in what? His faith that God would provide a lamb. All people for all time past, present, and future, are saved by the blood of Jesus. Abraham is saved by the blood of Jesus. Moses is saved by the blood of Jesus. David is saved by the blood of Jesus. Paul is saved by the blood of Jesus. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. 
Jesus is the only mechanism, the only means of salvation. Abraham believed in a Messiah that was to come. We believe in a Messiah that has come. Our salvation is always nestled in the blood of Christ and our faith in Jesus. Jesus was God's plan from the beginning, and Jesus understood that. As he entered into this discussion with his disciples, he told his disciples, it is necessary that I go and I suffer and I die because God has a divine plan, and that divine plan is to provide salvation to his people through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son. Now, I want to point out that not only was Jesus aware of the plan, but he was aware of all of the details of the plan. Look at what he says in verses 18 and 19. He says, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they'll condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised. Jesus understood. Chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders did not have the authority to crucify him. Only the Roman Empire did. Jesus understood that the sentence of death would be, pro- would be proclaimed by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And then they would in turn turn him over to the Roman officials. And the Roman officials would crucify him. The level of detail that Jesus speaks about the, the impending death and burial and resurrection of, of, of himself is, is proof that not only Jesus understood the divine plan, but he understood the very details of the divine plan. And what I want to point out to you is Jesus references the cup in this passage that's following, the cup that he is to endure. And he speaks of this cup often. I have three kids. One of them does not like food at all if if it were possible he would he would eat goldfish and cereal and and live on live on goldfish cereal and french fries uh in fact every time every time we we sit down at a meal it is a battle it is it it, the, the battle lines are clearly drawn and and we sit down and we say okay nicholas this is dinner this is lunch if, if, if you don't eat all of your food, you can't have anything else the rest of the day. A few weeks ago, we went to the ball field. Daniel had a baseball game, and, and we sat down right before we went to the ball game, and we had, made, we had made quesadillas. We had tortilla and cheese and chicken, and we made quesadillas. Well, Nicholas says, I don't like quesadillas, naturally. So we sit down, and we say, this is lunch. You can't have any. We're going to the ball field. You're going to want popcorn. You're going to want snowball. You're going to want, uh, you're going to want snacks. You're going to want all these treats, and you're not going to get anything. This is lunch. And he says, okay, I'm good. He said, we're bringing these quesadillas. This is lunch. You, before you eat anything, you have, to, you have to eat these quesadillas. So he says, okay. So we get to the ball field. We've got the quesadillas on a paper plate, and we bring them into the ball field. You know, we, we, we look like you know, crazy people carrying this paid, uh, paper plate full, full of quesadillas as we enter in the gate. And about an hour into the game, Nicholas says, Mom, I'm hungry. Can I have, a pop, uh, can I have some popcorn? So she takes out that paper plate now with cold, stale quesadillas and says, Here's lunch. You've got to eat it. 
So he says, no, I'm good. I'm good. He says, I'm not that hungry. About 30 minutes pass, and he says, hey, Mom, do you have those quesadillas? And he begins to eat, and he stomachs one down, and he says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Now can I have popcorn? She says, no, you've got to clean your plate. And so he stomachs the other one down, and then he gets popcorn and snowballs and all the junk that he wants. But he had to clean his plate. What I want us to notice is Jesus is full aware of the plate that has been set for him. He is full aware of the cup that he is staring down. Go with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 20, and I want us to look at verse 22 and 23. As James and John come to Jesus, and the mother of Jesus, James and John, nevertheless, uh, probably instigated by James and John, comes to Jesus and says, hey, can one of my sons sit on your right hand, one sit on your left? And notice Jesus' response in verse 22. You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, we are able, he said to them. My cup you shall drink. Jesus understood what this cup meant. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is going to be agonizing over this cup. Notice what he asked the Father. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, the same cup he's referencing here in Matthew chapter 20, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In Luke chapter, uh, in, in Luke's gospel, he talks about the cup that he is about to drink. And as he is anticipating and as he is agonizing, praying over the reality of the cup that he is about to drink, the scripture tells us that his sweat became as drops of blood as he agonized over the anticipation of draining this cup. Jesus understood what this cup was. All throughout the Old Testament, the cup has been synonymous with the wrath of God, with the judgment of God. In Jeremiah chapter 25, In Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah speaks of this cup of God's wrath. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, he says this. He says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of wine of the wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I shall send you to drink it. And they shall drink it and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me to drink. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and the kings and his princes, and made them a ruin, a horror, hissing, a curse, and as it is to this day. Jeremiah preached that the cup that the nations would drink would be the cup of God's wrath. In Ezekiel In Ezekiel chapter 23, we see a similar reference. As the prophet speaks in Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 28, he says this. 
He says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I will give you into the hands of those whom you hate and into the hands of those whom you were alienated. And they will deal with you in hatred and take all of your property and leave you naked and bare and, and leave you naked and bare. And the nakedness of your harlotries will be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, because you've defiled yourself with their idols. Their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. And thus says the Lord God, you will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide, and you will be laughed at and be held in derision, and it contains much. You'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it. Then you will gnaw at its fragments and tear your breasts. For I've spoken, declares the Lord God. The cup that Jesus referenced was the cup of the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. As John on the Isle of Patmos says this, he says, And he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire, brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. The cup that Jesus references is the cup of God's wrath. And he understood That his divine purpose was not simply to take a sip, was not simply to sample, but to drain the cup of God's wrath. The wrath of God for all of eternity was being stored up against sin and against sinners. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that God made him who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And he poured out the wrath of God that had been stored up for all of eternity on Christ. And Christ was staring down the cup of God's wrath. And he knew what was coming. He knew every detail. He knew the spikes that would be driven in his wrist. He knew the spikes that would be driven in his feet. He knew the scourging that he was going to endure. But even more than that, he knew the separation from the heavenly father he knew the spiritual anguish that he would suffer as he endured the wrath of god and as he drank every last drop of the cup of the wrath of god to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law jesus drained that cup jesus looks at james and john And he says, are you able to drink the cup of God's wrath? Knowing full well the answer. Jesus wasn't asking them to answer. It was a rhetorical question. Are you able to drink the cup? Because Jesus, full aware of every detail that was impending. I am so thankful. That his grace is enough. I am so thankful that I do not have to endure the wrath of God. Because there is no way that I am able. I know that the cup of God's wrath would completely destroy me. 
The great news of the gospel is that Jesus endured that wrath in our stead. If we go back to the book of Matthew chapter 20, I want us to notice the contrast of how Jesus refers to himself and how Matthew refers to Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, we understand that Matthew's gospel was written to whom? The Jews. And because Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews, Matthew refers to Jesus more than any other gospel as the son of David. There are nine different references in Matthew's gospel to Jesus as a son of David. And all of those references are by someone other than Jesus. Either the disciples, the blind man, the, 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 the chief priest, someone references Jesus as the son of David. However, anytime Jesus references himself, over 29 times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus does not reference himself as the son of David, but rather as the son of man. Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, pointing out to the people of Israel, pointing out to the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that Jesus was the anointed one, that Jesus was from the line of, from the line of David. We go back to the book of Matthew chapter 1 and we see the lineage that Jesus gives us. We see the genealogy that is given by, that is given by Matthew of Jesus and it traces Jesus' lineage back through Joseph, his father, through da to David, demonstrating that Jesus is the heir to the throne of David. However, when Jesus speaks of himself, 29 different references, all by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, more than any other Gospel, Jesus references himself as the Son of Man. Notice the contrast. Matthew highlights Jesus as the Son of David, the Anointed One, the Promised One, the fulfillment of the, of the prophecy that, that this is the one who will sit on the throne of David for all of eternity. Jesus says the Son of David must be a servant must be the Son of Man. The disciples had an incomplete understanding of the Messiah. They thought the Messiah was going to be a king. They thought the Messiah was going to be a warrior. They thought the Messiah was going to deliver Israel. And even after Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, they still didn't get it. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 1. I want us to see an incomplete understanding of who Jesus was by the disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. He's been killed. He's been resurrected. He's appeared to them several times. Right before he ascends into heaven, this is what they come to Jesus and they ask. They come to Jesus and say, so, when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Okay, we know we've been through this whole death, burial, and resurrection thing. We know you've, you, you've done the whole appeared to the thousands, appeared uh, to the upper room. We, we, we get all this. Now, now, quit dragging your feet already and go ahead and establish your kingdom and throw off Rome and, and, and let us become the nation of Israel. They still don't get it. They're thinking in a very, very temporal understanding. Jesus has been telling them over and over again, my kingdom is not of this world. It is not Rome that is the problem. It is sin that is the problem. It is a spiritual kingdom. This too shall pass. And the disciples just didn't get it. James and John just didn't get it. James and John seek honor and glory 
because of a temporal understanding of the kingdom. And I believe that many Christians, that many people who serve the Lord here today in the church in America just don't get it. We seek a temporal kingdom. We want to we increase our, our storehouses. We want to increase our wealth. We want to increase what, what our stuff. We want to be bigger. We want to be better. We want to have buses, and we want to have more baptisms, and we want to have bigger budgets. And we just don't get it that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus, however, brings the disciples back to the elementary teachings of grace to the humble and opposition to the proud. When James and John come to Jesus and they say, let, let me sit on one side and my brother sit on your other side, the rest of the disciples got indignant. Why? Because they wanted to sit on the right side and one on the left side. It wasn't because they understood the kingdom and here James and John were, 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 had a misunderstanding of the kingdom and they were indignant because, because they were grieved over the, the misunderstanding of their brothers. No. The reason the other ten got indignant was because they asked Jesus before they got a chance to. And they thought somehow that they would receive preferential treatment. And they were indignant. And Jesus brings them back. If you, look at James, if you look at Matthew chapter 20, he brings them back. And in verse 25, he says, disciples, you don't understand. The Gentiles lord over their authority. Verse 27, but whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And Jesus, just as the Son of Man, Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I want us to notice Jesus' final statement. He unpacks, I want to unpack this very, very briefly. Jesus makes two statements. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then he says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus turns the paradigm of the disciples and he said, the Son of Man, the Messiah, must be a servant. He must humble himself and become a servant. And I pray that when you leave here today that we will model Jesus as a servant. But then I want us to understand this last statement that he says. He will give his life as a ransom for many. Now the word ransom in our day means something completely different than it did in the first century. We understand ransom from a kidnapping perspective because we've all seen CSI. We've all seen you know, law and order. We've all seen criminal minds and, 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 and we know, oh, well, well a ransom, that, that means that, that somebody's been kidnapped and they've taken a piece of paper and, and they've, they've, they've glued all these letters together to send a ransom note and there's an expectation that, that this has to be paid because someone is being held captive. That is a different understanding than what the first century Jewish people would have understood. The word ransom in, in, that has been translated here in Matthew chapter 20 is more closely translated to redeem, a slave that has been purchased. That's the understanding. There's someone who is owned or someone who is, there is a debt. And to, to 
pay the ransom or to pay the redemption, to redeem that slave. That is the language, that is the understanding here in Matthew chapter 20. So what Jesus is saying is Jesus is that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how will he serve? He will give his life as a payment. He will give his life to redeem those who are in bondage. And notice what he says. And he will give his life as a ransom for many. That's a small Greek preposition. That word for carries with it so much meaning. Jesus said, the Son of Man will give his life to redeem in place of, instead of, on behalf of, many. Jesus became our substitute. I want us to understand this. Jesus is our Savior because He is our substitute. Jesus is our King because He is our servant. The nature of salvation was not that Satan was holding us for ransom. The nature of salvation is there was a debt. The wrath of God was due us. And Jesus stepped in as our substitute and endured the wrath of God on our behalf in our place he served us by becoming the object of God's wrath and as the wrath of God was poured out Jesus hung upon the cruel rugged Roman cross and spread his red rich royal blood that he might redeem us and as he hung on the cross He drank the entire cup of the wrath of God and drained it, turned it over, and said, it's finished. It's paid in full. And there is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do to earn favor from God because Jesus has already done it. Our only response is, is to give Him praise and glory because of who He is and what He's done. I want to point out to you these last two passages of Scripture and then we'll close. Acts chapter 2. As Jesus, as Peter's preaching, as the day on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit falls, Peter begins preaching in verse 29. He says, Brethren, Talking to the Jewish people, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and he he is in his tomb with us today. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did he suffer suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth His 
He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to the Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. Listen to verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was God who exalted Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was the servant. You say, well, where do you get that, preacher? Philippians chapter 2. He is our Savior because He is our substitute. He is our King because He is our servant. Philippians chapter 2, we see this passage. God, verse 8. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. Christ, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Therefore, because he humbled himself, because he was obedient, because he became our substitute, because he became our servant, therefore God highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is our King because he is our servant he is our savior because he is our substitute let's pray father may we see jesus as only jesus can be seen as the king of kings and the lord of lords but may we see him in all of his glory as our substitute. God, I am so thankful that you sent your Son to endure the divine wrath in my place. There's some of you here this morning who you know that you're not worthy to be called his son. You're not worthy to be called his child then you're absolutely right. That's the message of the gospel. You are not worthy, but Jesus is. And he stood in your place, and he suffered, and he died. And he was buried, and he was resurrected, victorious over sin, death, and the grave, that in him you might have eternal life. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Maybe God is calling you this morning to simple understanding that as a follower of Jesus, you are to serve. To serve Him, to serve His church, to serve others. During this time of invitation, may you be obedient to the Holy Spirit. God, may you move in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.